essentially upper or lower tract disease, flu-like symptoms, all indistinguishable, which is why you're, uh, you can't really make a clinical distinction. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the November 20th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. Please note that we will not be hosting our regularly scheduled COVID program on November 25th or 27th. We will resume the program on December 2nd. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. Today's learning objectives are describe the proposed scheme for vaccination, assess the need for COVID-19 testing, and discuss the clinical relevance of monoclonal antibodies. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Awater, we're glad that you could be here today. Thank you. Oh, great, uh, Faith. I think we have some very interesting questions coming around for this day. Yes, we do. Our first learner question is, how will we roll out the vaccine? So depending on which vaccines are approved, and I think the lead candidates are these two message RNA vaccines, one by Moderna, the other by BioNTech uh, Pfizer collaboration. These do need to be kept at rather uh, super cold temperatures, although they may be a bit stable for some days once they get to their destinations. Uh, much of these logistics, I think, are still unclear in many people's minds. But once they arrive, I think, uh, at least with the current administration, they'll be left up to the states to uh, develop their approach. Now, if we're going to try to immunize the country, as you might imagine, first, we don't have that many vaccines right in hand at this point. And second, uh, there is going to be a prioritization of people, uh, those who are most at risk to less at risk. So how each state plays that out, I think uh, you'll have to uh, look at your own uh, Department of Health and so on. But the CDC here has at least initial thoughts, uh, which are very similar to what other uh, groups have outlined and assumes that we won't have a, a large supply on hand of any vaccine or even multiple vaccines. So uh, healthcare personnel and essential workers will be at the front of the line. This would be then followed by people who are older than 65 because we know age 
is perhaps the most significant risk factor for serious illness or death. And then people with high risk factors, uh, so these would be health conditions such as diabetes, active cancer, immune suppression, and so on. Uh, but states themselves are going to outline the distribution plan. So these will vary. Now, beyond this phase one, and this is the National Academy of Medicine, which outlined this, there's phase two, three, and four. Uh, phase two, uh, if this rolls out this way, focuses on uh, teachers and school staff working with children because the thought is they will be at risk for exposure. Uh, then you have certain workers, people that are at moderate risk, people living in congregate living situations, jails, and so on, and then moving to younger adults and then everyone else. Uh, one of the, uh, as uh, it says very appropriately here, cross-cutting issues is about equity in the sense that many people who are at gravest risk for disease have barriers to access care or cannot take off work or live in uh, situations where they don't have easy ways of getting vaccines. So these are uh, people that we know are at higher risk for bad disease or death and have included Blacks, they've included the Latinx community, have included people with disabilities. So uh, how that's going to be worked in We'll see the incoming uh, Biden administration has suggested they will take this into account as uh, uh, vaccines are rolled out. But uh, whether that will happen before late January is uncertain. Okay, great. And our next question, are you aware of any studies about transporting COVID patients in ambulance, helicopter, or a fixed wing with heat or air conditioning on? I'm wondering about the dangers of COVID-19 remaining and exposing staff after transport. We are disinfecting surfaces and airing vehicle out for 15 minutes after transport. Yeah, well, uh, you know, um, I'm not sure about the smaller aircraft and, and many of those details. However, uh, if you have access to N95 masks, wear a face shield, if, if the person you're transporting uh, uh, is able to wear a mask comfortably um, if they're not intubated and so on, uh, that should help decrease transmission. But if you're in a fairly small enclosed space and if there's not great ventilation, then I think there are causes for concern. And I think it's right to try to uh, disinfect and air out to reduce any lingering virus uh, before your next patient. Uh, some details I, I found are on this publication, which looked at some of the issues here. And so uh, I would just direct anyone that has interest in this to this article. Uh, but they also had an interesting and rather advocated for something called a PIU, a patient isolation unit. And you can get a picture of it here. And so this is a bit of an enclosed bubble. There's uh, some uh, filtration apparatus. And again, this helps deal with many of the issues that uh, this questioner is bringing up, whether this is feasible, uh, certainly in a helicopter and otherwise, I, I can't tell. But uh, certainly there's uh, some interesting things that can be looked at to try to help uh, mitigate risks to not only future patients, but uh, uh, the staff and the flying personnel taking care here. 
Okay, thank you. Our next learner asks, is there any evidence about people living with HIV who are infected with COVID-19 having higher SARS-CoV-2 viral loads than people without HIV? If yes, would that pose an elevated risk to others? Well, I'll start off with the last part of that question. There's some, some relatively good and even growing evidence that people who are exposed to higher viral loads might develop infection more quickly in a more overwhelming sense and perhaps have worse infection. Now, the HIV story, uh, we don't have a lot of data. What it does seem, though, is that any, if anyone has controlled HIV, they are probably not at any different risk than they would be based on any of their other risk factors, such as age, or they have health problems, such as diabetes, or so on. Uh, people that have AIDS or low uh, CD4 counts, I think there's just not sufficient study yet to understand that. Uh, certainly, a SARS-CoV-2 virus has its own immunodysregulatory properties, which are more acute than they are for HIV. I, I would say that generally, uh, respiratory viruses are not something that people with AIDS have necessarily to a worse degree. Certainly, they're a little more predisposed to getting pneumonia, um, as complications perhaps, and so on. But to the virus itself, I think that's still an open question. There's some small studies that have looked at this, but I think nothing definitive. Great, thank you. Can you please discuss the recent emergency use authorization for the monoclonal antibody? How will the antibody be administered in ambulatory patients? Yeah, so this is the Eli Lilly monoclonal antibody against the spike protein which I have trouble pronouncing, but I think it, uh, I would call it uh, BAMLAM-IVIMAB. And uh, this monoclonal has been authorized as an investigational drug by the FDA for outpatients only. Uh, it actually uh, did not look like it benefited people in the hospital, so people with more advanced illness, so it's not to be used there. And the dose is currently 700 milligrams. And it's authorized uh, for people at high risk for severe COVID-19. So it's people over 65 or people with uh, health problems such as diabetes, uh, renal failure, and these sorts of things. They're all listed on the EUA and the information for healthcare providers. Interestingly, it says it has to be given as a one-hour infusion. This is interesting because uh, the study that was published in the New England Journal uh, used doses of either 700 or 7,000 infused over an hour. Obviously, the, the 7,000 dose, you got 700 milligrams in about six minutes. Um, so it's unclear to me why the 700 milligram dose needs to go in over an hour, but be that as it may, uh, that's the current recommendation. Now, the drug is being distributed to each state and then states decide where it's given. I can only speak to Maryland. Uh, we've not infused any of this medicine here. Uh, you need to, uh, of course, have a positive uh, SARS-CoV-2 test. On average in the study, which suggested that it reduced the risk of going to the hospital or the emergency room, people got the dose at a median of only four days after symptoms. And I would say it should be get, gotten as soon as possible after diagnosis for benefit. But in Maryland, there are four sites across the state where it will be administered. 
Um, we're going to have, I believe we're going to have our own medical personnel there that will then have anyone that's recommended by a physician to get the monoclonal. They will do their additional screening to make sure they fit within the UA and then be scheduled uh, to receive it. Uh, the, the supplies of this are not unlimited. So I think we have something like uh, 880 uh, doses uh, for the entire state of Maryland, and it is based on population within the state and I believe cases. So whether more will become available, unclear. I will tell you the Regeneron monoclonal antibody has the advantage of being subcutaneous uh, administration. So that'll be much easier to give uh, than this monoclonal, which is intravenous. Okay. And this question says, there seems to be some controversy about school closings. What does the evidence suggest about the spread of COVID in schools and then to families? Yeah. <laughs> so there is. Uh, so this is one of those questions where I think there's no clarity. Certainly with increasing and high transmission rates in communities, closing schools are an option. There's some data that suggests schools are not nearly the sort of uh, spots for transmission that some have feared. Unlike influenza, which clearly one of the areas that influenza spreads so much is among school-age children. Now, children tend not to get ill with the coronavirus, so you know, unfortunately, they can bring it into the household and not be aware. They're not immune to carrying the infection or spreading it, uh, but it may be less than initially feared. Some studies have suggested that adolescents are more likely than elementary school children. Uh, I think this uh, remains, in my mind, unclear, but I think if you're in a position of government and speaking with public health authorities, you're just trying to do what you can to limit spread if you're getting to dangerous thresholds in your communities where essential workers or healthcare personnel are getting ill in such numbers that uh, it creates uh, danger. So and school closings probably will uh, be at play in that range. But for example, in New York City is tiptoeing around a 3% uh, testing positivity as their threshold. Everyone's uh, considering this uh, a bit differently. And of course, the a school from home is an option as opposed to being in person. Thank you very much. With influenza imminent, how can we distinguish between influenza and COVID-19? Uh, clinically, I really don't believe you can uh, to any great degree. I, I suppose the one piece that uh, many of us would have a heightened concern for the coronavirus would be a perturbation of taste or smell, which can occur in up to two-thirds of people, far more than it would in influenza, where it's quite uncommon. Uh, of course, any virus can do that. Influenza tends to occur much faster, uh, often just two days after exposure, where the uh, coronavirus takes five or six on average. Influenza usually comes on like a ton of bricks. You know, I mean, this is where you go to, you know, you have your coffee, you have breakfast, you go into work, you feel fine. And by two o'clock, you begin to notice something. And by, you know, three to four o'clock, you want to head home, crawl under bed and watch Netflix. Um, the coronavirus is a bit more uh, gradual. COVID is a bit more of a lower respiratory tract infection initially than influenza. Uh, but essentially, upper or lower tract disease, flu-like symptoms, all indistinguishable, which is why you're, uh, 
You can't really make a clinical distinction for the most part. I think we'll likely be doing empiric treatment for influenza if people are presenting early. Um, there's no outpatient uh, treatments for COVID-19 and, and many times you don't have the rapid testing in your facilities or you have to send people for COVID-19 emergency rooms and perhaps some emergency care centers while multiplex panels so we can do all these tests in one unit. How you distinguish diagnostically is best uh, that you understand what assays you have available to you ordering through either your hospital facility, uh, what you might have in your urgent care facility, or testing that your state or local health departments may offer. Thank you. And Dr. Allwater, this is our final learner question today. Aside from consequent contact tracing and social isolation, is there a definitive clinical need to test for COVID in patients with mild symptoms? Which patients require testing? Now, this is an interesting question. Of course, many people contract the infection and never get diagnosed. This is true for most viral infections. And I would say uh, people with mild symptoms, this is likely the case. You know, in terms of a definitive clinical need, someone with mild uh, symptoms, yeah, sure, you don't need to get diagnosed. You just have a viral illness and you're going to get better. It's really the public health imperative that's important because if you're positive, then you would know you need to self-isolate to help prevent infection to others, increasing community burden, uh, giving the virus to someone who's at risk. To me, you know, the clinical need, you know, you can quibble with the, the social or the public health need is one that uh, without a test result, I think it's hard to suggest that just because someone has a mild cough, you're going to say, well, you know, you have to self-isolate now for at least 10 days and that you have resolution of symptoms. I mean, that that's the other context, the clinical context. And I'd say as a physician, that's often hard to argue for and have people adhere. Dr. Allwater, thank you again for those updates. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again, Dr. Allwater. Yeah, thank you, Faith, and I hope you all stay well in your families and um uh, do what you can for your patients and everyone to have a uh, careful holiday uh, Thanksgiving and the December holidays as well.